You started your way uh, as a pretty young person. Uh, some people uh, specifically uh, who are, uh, I don't know, uh, never be, uh, had such kind of experience. They always say, oh, he's so young. But I believe that we just uh, don't understand that some people just don't ask about permission. I mean, we always have an opportunity to start anytime. Mm-hmm. We have so much stuff on internet. We have a Uh, courses, we have a Wikipedia, we have a search engines, we can work completely remotely, we can connect people, we have a LinkedIn. So uh, how do you feel that you started to create stuff? Uh, do you have some kind of adapts? I mean, due to the maybe external opinions, like uh, so kind of adapts, maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe I'm too young, maybe I have no enough resources, maybe with stuff on internet, it's not, it's not good, maybe I need to go to Harvard first, without education, it's impossible to create anything. Or you actually have a feeling that you uh, do the right stuff and you're ready to create and lead your game. So, so I would say this is a very interesting, uh, a very interesting discussion in the sense that um, I believe that if you're passionate about something, right, if you find something, a certain task, a certain activity, a certain field fun and exciting to work in, then regardless of your age or regardless of the resources you have, you eventually find a way to excel in that field because you end up spending a lot of time in it just because you enjoy it, right? And it's not a matter of whether or not there's something that you enjoy that much and you can actually excel at. It's just a matter of finding it, in my opinion, right? There, there are all sorts of people, you know, again, across the age spectrum from really young to really, really old that are good at a very wide variety of tasks. I mean, I, I specifically am interested in programming, but it can be anything. It could be art. It could be math. It could be language, right? It, whatever it is. If you are passionate about it and if someone helps you find that passion, then finding the resources is trivial at that point. Because like, for example, I mean, back when I was five, my dad introduced me to programming. And the reason he did that was because he just saw, you know, computers fascinated me. And the reason they fascinated me was because, I mean, if you think about it, there's all these other toys and then there's technology and technology was interactive, right? It could do infinitely more things and I could interact with it in infinitely more ways than I could any other toy. So I was so just fascinated by that interaction element that my dad saw that and he just introduced me to the world of programming again not with the intention of me ever you know doing like ai machine learning or doing like complex programming no just with the intention of hey if you're fascinated by computers here's programming and that that sort of made me so curious and that, that hooked my interest so much that i really just took it forward from there and i was like i, I want to learn about this through any resource possible started googling things watching youtube tutorials reading different books uh, i had my first ios app in the store when i was nine and it really just went on from there. So I would say that if you are interested in something, you will find the way 
to learn about it. And really all it takes is someone to help you find that passion. And then from there, your passion and your curiosity really drive it forward from there. So, I mean, I again, I gave my example with the world of programming and technology, but it's really cross-domain, it's cross-field, it's cross-demographic, it could be age, it could be anything, right? And then another thing that I realized along the way, and this is the fun part, it expands, right? It's not just the one thing. I realized that you know, I'm watching all these other people's tutorials and reading their books. And I realized through that, not only am I passionate about developing technology, but also about creating tech, uh, creating resources to help others learn about technology, right? So so then it, one thing leads to another, and there are all these different things that I find out about that I, that I happen to have been passionate about that I just didn't realize it because I didn't have the exposure to that field yet. So one by one, things just sort of grow in that sense. Uh, and then sometimes you can start to think things more seriously, right? So when that passion, once you've gained enough experience with it, then you can start to think, take things more seriously and put actual goals behind it, right? So like now I have this goal of reaching out to 100,000 aspiring coders and helping them innovate. Um, and, and so far I'm around 16,000 people there. And I'm really always working towards that goal, again, through numerous different media. I mentioned my YouTube channel, the books I author, all these sorts of things that are helping me work towards that goal. So it's really just... It's, it's that seed of passion that you start off with, and then it just grows exponentially from there. It's, it's a cycle that just keeps going and going. It sounds awesome. You mentioned that you start uh, your interest from uh, interest in, in uh, computer in, in general in five, and you upload your app in nine. What was your first work? And what thing was uh, the most interesting for you? Some people became obsessed with games, with apps, with uh, design. So what particular uh, practical task or thing you tried to create was your first experience? Sure. So... From the very beginning, um, it, when, when I was getting into programming, and even now, my main passion doesn't necessarily lie within the end um, sort of sort of thing that I'm building, like let's just say a game, right? Or let's just say, um, you know, a, a design or something of that sort. My passion has always lied within the actual logic and the algorithms that go behind those as the building blocks behind those larger applications. That's where my passion has always lied. Um, and, and perfect examples of this would be like, I mean, for for example, back when I was five or six, uh, what I would do is is create like really simple calculator programs in C, where it would take like two numbers from the user and then an operator, and then and then run the two numbers on that operator and print out the the result. Um, and and back then, of course, I barely knew what those operators did. I I, I had the I, I knew what the operator was for division. I didn't necessarily completely understand it. Um, but but what that goes to show is that. I, I didn't necessarily say, you know, I want to build a game that lets me play this. And then I went ahead and built it so that I could play the game. But rather, I was really interested in how those building blocks of logic and, 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 and the sort of computational thinking behind programming actually works. That's what my main passion lied in. Um, but, I mean, regardless of that... I was able to use those building blocks in a variety of really interesting ways. Um, so, for example, uh, I was able to build like SQL tables uh, where it would store, say, the quantity of different flavors of ice cream that a certain ice cream parlor has, right? Or when when I started to take things a bit more seriously back in grade three, uh, I had a bit of trouble with my times tables, and so I developed a little Visual Basic application that would help me practice my times tables. And so I was like, hey, if I understand programming and I'm having a bit of trouble with my times tables, why not make a tool to help me practice them? And then that led me to think, hey, well, other people could use this tool as well, and they could benefit 
input from it. And so I converted that to an iOS application in, in Objective-C and uploaded that to the iOS app store. Um, so again, it was that sort of one thing leads to another, but it initially started off with me being really fascinated by just the logic of, of what the computer's going through in terms of steps to solve a problem. Um, and then, of course, the actual programming of that and the implementation of that on the computer to see what it, what it allows me to do. Uh, you mentioned that um, the idea to find particular logic behind things, uh, idea to connect it, it which is what drives your journey. Uh, but since you uh, try to teach other people and help them to learn how to cut, what is your recipe for other people? Because, for instance, there is an uh, opinion that the best way uh, to learn coding and try to create something or try to... Uh, actually uh, been involved in some practical task or something that create connection of you with process because then people just try to learn data science without particular reason interest they just became bored because it's a studying in vacuum and it just doesn't work so what's your recipe to uh, learn coding in funny way in a very engaging way Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I will say that I do agree in some ways with learning by creating, learning by example. Um, but there are some ways that that's done that I don't necessarily completely agree with. Um, and and as a perfect example, I, I believe that when a lot of people learn how to program, um, I'm not sure if it would be a perfect analogy, but something on a similar or parallel line would be something like the Dunning-Kruger effect, where I feel like people when they when they when they learn to program by building a certain thing their their scope of programming their view of the world of programming becomes so narrow that they think oh this is what programming is about and they have that extremely narrow scope and they're like i'm an expert in this because they don't realize how much there is that they don't know Right. So and, and they kind of um, if I'm going to use a machine learning term here, they kind of overfit to that one specific example. So, for example, some people would say, hey, I learned how to build a game in Python. So now I'm a Python programmer or I'm a Java programmer. or I'm a C programmer. I don't think it works that way. It's really you are a programmer. You understand programming concepts. You understand computational thinking. And now you happen to understand the syntax of the C programming language. But the thing is, you're generally a programmer. If I were to give you a set of Python syntax and tell you these are these are this is how basic programming concepts map to Python concepts, then you should be able to write any program in C or Python. It, that's that's how I think people should learn how to code. Don't overfit to a specific app or a specific language. Generalize to that logic. Now you can learn that logic through a specific example, and this is what I was getting to. That's where I do agree with it's important to create things because I also learn best by example. So, for example, um, uh, a little while ago, I started to get really into compiler technology uh, and compiler technology is really fascinating stuff, specifically the LLVM toolkit. Um, and the thing is, LLVMs pretty complex. I mean, it has a lot of different moving parts. There's lots of things to deal with. And I had to I had to learn LLVM to actually build a project at IBM uh, for the DB2 organization. And uh, this, it, of course, this was a pretty complex project that I was working on, but I'd never used LLVM in depth before. So instead of like, for example, getting a book or watching YouTube tutorials on LLVM, I took a bit of a different approach. And this is what I usually do for anything, which is take my problem, uh, generalize it, simplify it, do something that is achievable, right? Something that I can understand. Go online, try and find different GitHub repositories where people have done something similar. Download them, just get them to work, right? Don't try and understand them, just get them to work. 
so that I can see that it's working in front of my eyes. Run it a few times. I'll try to understand how it's working and how the source code behind it works. And then from there, try and see if I can implement it myself. And as I'm trying to do that, there are many unanswered questions that couldn't be answered just by looking at the other person's source code. And when I have those questions, that's when I can go back to documentation or different books to be like, hmm, how do I how do I solve this specific problem? Or what does this specific class do? Or what kind of function do I call in this um, in this in this class in order to get the, my in, in order to get the result that I want? Right. So there are different things that I can then explore and, and sort of fill in the gaps in my knowledge. So learning by creating or with an end goal is good as long as you keep in mind that getting to that goal isn't where you're going to end, right? So getting to that goal that won't teach you the entirety of programming. It's more of you're going to see one example of a single kind of logic in a single kind of language, and then you've got to generalize that to a more uh, a broader problem-solving framework. Okay. Uh, you've wrote a book um, dedicated to how to learn coding being a kid. So I would like to ask you uh, who you define as a kid. So what is the minimal age to learn how to code in your opinion? So I would say there's no necessarily strict minimal age, right? And, and, and the reason I say that is because, again, you can learn the basic logic behind programming at quite literally any age. I mean, for example, there's the Scratch application, which I, I personally quite enjoy um, in, in terms of like what it teaches you. Um, and there's also the Swift Playgrounds application that I also really like. Uh, and then, of course, there's my books, like, for example, Hello Swift and Tanmay Teaches Julia that are more targeted towards kids, really beginners in general, and, and getting into the world of programming. And the thing about these, these, these resources is, sure, they teach you how to code. Right. But then there's some like Scratch that teach you almost exclusively computational thinking. There's no code involved. It's just let's just say you want to get this character from one end of the screen uh, based off of a certain condition. Right. It teaches you the concept of a condition and the numerous different outcomes that are possible based off of that condition. It teaches you the concept of loops and how you can iterate and do something multiple times. It teaches you the concept of a block of code and how it's a general and can be called multiple times. It teaches you all these different things that build this mental model in your mind of what programming is like. So really, it's it's never too early to start getting into that logic. I mean, even as young as five, people can at least start working with Scratch. They don't need to excel in it. I mean, back when I was five, I barely, you know, created great C programs. And of course, that's that's to be expected. You're five years old. But the thing is, by creating that mental model at a really young age, what you're doing is you are setting yourself up to be able to think in a computational manner for the rest of your life better. I mean, this has been proven by multiple different you know, studies and, 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 and different research that, that people have done. Um, and it's that when you're born, you have, you have many times more synapses in your mind than you do than when you're older. I mean, as, as babies, we have all sorts of abilities that we never can have as adults. Like, for example, being able to do facial recognition on primates. You know, we are we are great at facial recognition on humans, but not primates as adults. But then as babies, we can do that perfectly. But the thing is, because those synapses are never used, your brain ends up essentially deleting them, for lack of a better word, because they're just spending up resources. So the more you learn a certain skill at a young age, the better you're going to be at it later in life, because the more actual physical neural structures you're keeping around to deal with tasks like that. So I think it's never too early to start getting into computational thinking, never too early to really introduce a kid to anything, right? The earlier you introduce them to anything, the better they're going to be at it later. Um, it's just we don't necessarily want to keep the focus on programming and actually writing code because that's not effective. Keep the focus on, again, 
computational thinking and that problem-solving framework that I was talking about, super rudimentary, simple examples, just to help them build that mental model. Many people um, study to learn how to code because we have a very concrete uh, idea uh, to uh, advance their career, find an internship, or uh, do something in their life. So we usually ask very simple question, how much time it takes to learn at least one language or two languages in order to make apps, uh, make games, or make some stuff for companies? Because people have a very uh, uh, simple logic. I would love to be monetized for my yeah. efforts. So we would love to learn how long it takes, how, it, how, how it's hard. So in your opinion, how much time it takes to learn at least one language to create something? So... Again, I would say that it really, really depends. Now, there are some resources, like for example, uh, there's my book Tammy Teaches Julia, right? And this is this is a book that, um, if I were to actually show you here, it starts off assuming you know nothing about programming, right? So you you are completely starting from scratch, never programmed before. It teaches you all the basic concepts, um, and towards the end, it even gets you into machine learning. So it shows you a little bit of you know machine learning code, and and one of my favorite examples, and this is something that again gets people fascinated about the world of machine learning and, and, and sort of want gets them into it is like deep dream at the end right so how you can implement google deep dream in, in julia and what's interesting about this is that all of this learning programming from scratch and then getting into machine learning is done in under 165 pages like of actual content right so what's what that really shows is that learning these concepts and being able to build applications which you actually do in this book is possible in a very short time span i would say that in a couple of weeks you can gain a good understanding of the julia language um, and you can you can start to build rudimentary machine learning applications like copying the deep dream example or something simple like you know gradient descent to uh, to negate numbers or things like this um, and what I mean by that is within say three four weeks you will have a good understanding of the Julia language you will be able to take logic that's already written out for you and and sort of transcribe that into the Julia language. That's that's essentially a guarantee, right? From, from uh, guarantee, I mean, use, using that as a loose word here. Um, but then the next step would be taking a problem and then in your mind, it being able to transcribe that to logic that you then write in the Julia code. That takes a couple of months of just practice, right? In terms of practice, I'm saying just coming up with problems, seeing what problems people have, and creating applications or creating programs to solve those problems. And when you do that, you are gaining the practice of going from problem to solution to program end to end with all the steps that go in between that. So learning a language isn't really that difficult because at that point it's just not even remembering, just having a vague idea of syntax. But then from there, being able to take a problem and actually write the right code uh, to solve that problem, that's something that I would say takes a lot of practice and quite a few applications to build. And even today, for every single application that I build, I'm always learning more and more from it. Um, so it's, it's, I would say it takes only a couple of weeks to, to get syntax um, because it seems a lot more complex than it is. It's actually a lot simpler than natural language because of how limited its, con its constructs are. Um, but then actually getting that, again, that problem-solving framework that I was talking about, getting that into your head does take a few programs or a few, prog uh, a few problems worth of practice to get. 
Okay. Uh, now let's talk about not kids, but maybe teenagers or people who are a bit older. Uh, based on statistics and the practice of uh, our industries, we typically uh, pick Python for some uh, task re uh, related to robotics, ju just for instance, or for some kind of a, a huge data sets, uh, statistic, maybe fin financial sector, and we pick Java or C for application. Based on your experience and your views and your uh, ability to connect the dots, how do you think what's the top languages maybe three or four people should learn in order to create stuff or work in top organization in the next decade? So I would say um, that first of all, uh, starting from a technical perspective, the way the world works is a bit sad in a way, in the sense that organizations and large enterprises have written so much code in languages like Python that it's very difficult for them to transition to other languages. Now, I'm going to start off from a technical perspective, then I'll get to like a job market perspective. From a technical perspective, my top languages that I, that I enjoy would be Swift, Julia, and Go. The reason I say that is because all three of them are innovative languages from a syntax perspective, from a compiler technology perspective, from a app use case perspective, from, a, from, from really every angle. They are innovative and they are cutting edge and they are inventing new technologies. Um, so, for example, if you take a look at the Swift language, the way it's compiled, they've actually invented new compiler technology so that TensorFlow can integrate into the language so machine learning models get first class support in the language. This is exceptional stuff. This is stuff we've never seen in, a, in another language before. In Julia, their compiler support within the language natively is so powerful that you can write CUDA kernels to run GPU code directly within Julia. And Go is incredibly powerful because, first of all, it's, it's very fast compile times. And the fact that it's so low level, it even has its own runtime for its own threads and Go routines um, so that you can run millions of Go routines at the same time and have them use barely any resources on the actual computer. So these languages are, are so special that I would say these are the ones that are, that are going to be used in the future. Right. In the future, as organizations slowly start to shift away from languages like Python, these are the languages they're going to go to, Swift, Julia, and Go. These are the cutting-edge languages that really deserve all, all the attention that they can get. Now, Python, Java, and C, as you were talking about, these are the kinds of the languages that, well, not necessarily C. C is kind of like a, a classic that's here to stay. It's important. It has its use cases. Python and Java, I would say, aren't here to stay for the long run. Um, Java, because it's it's not good to code in. It's, it's not a great experience to code in, right? It, it might be powerful. It is powerful. The JVM is great. But then there are languages like Kotlin that solve a lot of the syntax problems and, and experience problems, but still are compatible with Java code. So I, I, in my mind, I see Java slowly being phased out and things things like Kotlin sort of taking its place. Um, and then hopefully we're able to use, to use different backends for Kotlin, like the LLVM backend to do um, direct compilation. Um, so Java's on its way out, but it's going to take a long time because of how much code is already written in Java. I just don't see many new major projects started with Java. Um, however, if we were to take a step back and talk, talk about Python, Python's here again for the long run, but is slowly going to be phased out. Reason I say that, it's an interpreted language it's not compiled, and it's a language that wasn't meant for what we're trying to do with it today. 
So it was never meant to do things like machine learning or this complex scientific computing. It was meant to be a simple language for writing scripts or simple applications, things that weren't performance sensitive. But because of the fact that you can bridge C code into Python, people were like, hey, what if we write something like TensorFlow in C and then call it from Python? What they didn't realize is that they were, they were essentially creating a language environment within a language environment, which is extremely difficult to code in. You're doing meta code at that point. Um, so, so what I would say is Python Java, here for the long run, but they're going to be phased out because they, they are simply a, a bad experience for developers and developers don't like them. And things can be done more efficiently and more cost effectively and faster and better in other languages like Swift, Julia, and Go. Languages like C, I would say it's important to learn a language like C no matter what because it gives you a really good idea of the low-level uh, architecture behind computing. It gives you an idea of how memory management works. It gives you an idea of how you can code in these complex applications using only very, very basic constructs. Um, so C is useful no matter what because of how low-level it is and just directly to hardware it is. Uh, but then from there, languages like Python, Java, slowly going out for more modern languages to come in and help developers write better code faster. Now, let's talk about uh, your work with IBM. Um, as far as I know, you became the youngest IBM Watson developer and advisor. So I would love to ask you, what is your uh, involvement in IBM? So what is your responsibility, expertise? Uh, is it kind of a part-time or full-time work? You're uh, more kind of employee or advisor. What type of a project uh, you're responsible for? So I um, would love to know. Sure. So, I mean, I collaborate with a, a bunch of different companies in a bunch of different ways, right? So, IBM is one of the companies that I that I work for that I that I work with, um, and so I collaborate with them in an internal and an external fashion, is what I would say. Um, so, like for example, there's some projects that I'm working on within IBM as I mean, since you know, as, as, because of my age, technically as an intern, um, and these projects range from, as I was saying, you know, compiler technology within the DB2 code base. All the way to creating courses and enabling developers um, to learn about IBM technology and technology in general like Swift for TensorFlow better. So it ranges in, in a pretty wide variety. And externally with IBM on a bunch of other things um, and, and a bunch of other companies, thing, companies like Twilio and, and Google on their cloud services and, and, and again enabling developers to use them. Um, so I would say that it really varies. There are lots of different things that I do. There's no one single role that I have at any single company. Um, there are projects that I work on externally and internally at a lot of different companies. Um, so for example, at uh, Google, I've been contributing to the Swift for TensorFlow team's code base. I was writing a bunch of different recurrent neural network layers for them and helping them structure their Swift for TensorFlow deep learning APIs. Um, at IBM, I actually released a course on the Swift for TensorFlow framework just a little while ago on CognitiveClass.ai, which is IBM's course platform. Um, again, as I mentioned at DB2, I'm working on custom compiler technology and new front ends for the database. Um, so there's all sorts of different stuff, again, that I'm doing in a wide variety of areas, and there's not necessarily one specific, um, one specific role that I have at the company. Okay. Based on this uh, information, could I say that you uh, would love to keep more kind of an independent expert and entrepreneur way in just combining it with the external engagement, always keeping your own journey, your vision, and incubating all your knowledge uh, within your brain, just uh, sharing with external society time to time, and you don't, don't want to become a part of a particular company in long-term perspective? 
So I would say that uh, really, again, what, what I'm saying is it, is it would depend. See, the thing is, I still have a bit of time before I decide, you know, if I end up joining a company or something of that sort. So I haven't put um, a, an extraordinary amount of thought into it. But what I would say is, first of all, I really enjoy working with technology and making an impact with technology. So I enjoy being able to impact people's lives in a positive way with the power of technology. So whatever helps me work towards that goal is something that I want to do. Now, if that involves uh, creating technology outside of a large company, then definitely that's what I'm going to do. But if it has to involve things like focusing on, on, on you know, things outside of technology, that's not necessarily my what I'm, what I'm interested in. So most likely what I do want to do is have my own sort of journey of working with technology and being able to impact people's lives, uh, whether that's in, inside a company like IBM or their research division or another company like Google or Apple or whatever, or whether that's my own company, I, I'm not sure about the actual framework, but my goal is to be able to impact people's lives positively with the power of next generation technologies and enabling them to use that technology in their own fields as well. Um, and, and so that's, that's really what my main goal is. Uh, you mentioned that your main mission is to impact life through technology. And I would say that based on my experience working with uh, technologists and inventors around the world, uh, you're completely different from 99% of developers. So 99% of developers have no such kind of a mindset and skill set. And in, very often they work in, in some kind of a vacuum of technology and after that, other people should find a way to connect this technology with reality, with society, with smart cities, with inclusive classroom. And that's why in most cases it just doesn't work. And we even thought about uh, hiring some kind of a social scientist in residence or some additional functionality for a product developer, for a product uh, manager, because there is just no connection between algorithms in reality. That's why we have a facial recognition bias. Uh, we have a drug discovery technology, but it doesn't work. In your opinion, and based on your journey, um, what is the best way to make uh, developers open-minded, holistic, and um, people who connected with different visions and elements of society. So where technology is just a tool, but the whole world is a big, and I need to consider different criteria, like a data ethic, like a human lives, like a quality of my work, quality of people lives. So what is your recipe, how to learn it? So, so first of all, uh, taking one step back. So, I mean, I mentioned that I'm passionate about, you know, making an impact with technology. And the reason that I'm so passionate about that is because I have seen from a very young age as I've been working on, you know, creating these tutorials on my YouTube channel, doing different keynotes about different, you know, next-gen technology topics, I have seen that the impact, the kind of impact that technology can have on people's lives is, is truly extraordinary, right? So machine learning technology, artificial intelligence technology can literally save and augment millions of lives every single day if it's applied the right way. So that's why I'm passionate about it. So that's, that's, that's the sort of 
fundamental thing. We have to understand why I'm passionate about it in the first place to understand how we can get others to be passionate about it. Um, but then from there, I believe that maybe the blame isn't completely on the developers. I think it's really society as a whole and the way it's structured that makes it extremely inefficient for people that are good at technology and people that want to make an impact to really work together. Now, if you think about it at the end of the day, even if you want to make an impact, that impact kind of boils down to why do you want to make an impact for a lot of people economic gain um regardless of what the impact is if you're saving people's lives that means you can earn money from them um that's unfortunate but that's how a lot of it works and the thing is if you have the expectation of being able to earn money based off of a certain use case then you will have the money to be able to hire developers to work on implementing that use case now here's the problem the people that are responsible for thinking about what could help them make money are not the people that understand technology. And because of that, we're seeing a lot of investment in the wrong areas. So I think it's more of a problem of how society is structured and how companies and, and, and institutions are structured rather than just developers not wanting to make an impact. So that's why in, in, you know, every time when I talk to people that, you know, are, are leaders of businesses, my number one sort of takeaway for them is bridge the gap between domain experts and developers. That's the only way to solve this. Because developers, no matter how much they want to make an impact, they can't be experts at everything and know how to make an impact in every field. But domain experts, no matter how technical they are, they're still a domain expert. They're not going to be you know, professional developers that understand the technology inside net. Now, if you are, very good. But if you aren't, I think the best way to solve the problem is to enable your domain experts to work with technologists to, first of all, find the right problems to solve and then try and try and determine what technology to use. Don't work from the technology backwards. Don't think, I want to use machine learning in healthcare. How can I do it? Think, here are the problems in healthcare. This one can be solved, maybe in part, using machine learning technology. That's how I think people should think about it. Um, you mentioned applications like dr drug discovery and, and, and smart cities and, and things like this that people have been talking about for a long time but so far haven't really taken off off or have mostly failed. And what I would say to that is that the more you hear about something, the more it's marketed before it's actually ready or actually a product, the less likely it is, in my opinion, to actually be impactful as a technology. What I mean by that is, if you take a look at like drug discovery or, or smart cities, these have been things that we've been talking about for a very, very long time. But we're barely starting to see that integration or that technology actually come to, to, come to life and, and start working. However, if you take a look at hundreds, thousands of other technologies that are now being powered by artificial intelligence or machine learning, they're impacting your lives in innumerable ways. It's just that you don't realize it. So in a way, what people do is they earn money for artificial intelligence you know, development or research by talking about applications like drug discovery or smart cities or whatever. Right? This is what happens when you want to earn money. You talk about applications like this just because people that aren't technical are fascinated by them. But then when you actually start sitting down and doing the research and the development, you start to realize, well, maybe that isn't necessarily the goal we're working towards. We're going to develop AI technology. Now, that AI technology will still impact our lives in 
countless ways, right? We're using machine learning technology for noise canceling. Your noise canceling headphones more than likely using machine learning in some way. Apple is using machine learning technology in their cameras to, to help you take better photos. So you don't need to take like a whole DSLR camera. You can just have two cameras on the back of your phone and suddenly you've got studio quality portraits. Um, we're using machine learning technology to help developers code faster by trying to predict what it is that they want to write. We're, uh, NASA is using genetic algorithms in order to optimize the shape of their antennae um, to make them better for, for certain kinds of usage. Um, th there's all sorts of stuff that we're doing that's impacting our lives in so, so many different ways. It's just that the average person sees the use cases like smart cities and drug discovery, which is something that they're fascinated by, and that helps them earn money. But then it actually goes to thousands of other use cases that you don't necessarily, you know, look and look at and say, "Wow, that's so futuristic." This is something that I expected to see in like a sci-fi movie, but rather um, something that is a lot more realistic, something that is actually technically possible, but still very impactful. So I would say that it's really at that point not a case of the fact that technology isn't impactful or that developers aren't wanting to make an impact. It's more of a marketing issue. It's an issue of the average person not really having much technical expertise or knowing what to expect from technology. Um, and, and it's sort of a lot of issues that come together to form this one larger issue. Um, so enabling developers to work more closely with domain experts and having a more realistic and grounded view of different technologies by having the average person have a basic understanding of these technologies are the two keys to solving that problem, in my opinion. You mentioned a very important point regarding that we actually have a situation then uh, impact makers or people who are looking for impact disconnected from developers. And since you're uh, located in Canada, there's a very significant topic. It's related to climate change. And it's a very funny for me because I know super amazing teams who work in circular economy, who work in uh, machine learning um, in, or uh, analytics uh, against climate change, many, many solutions. At the same time, we have a conferences with activists who say, we have no solution. We actually have a, a apocalypse just tomorrow. And uh, what's the problem? <laughs> so what was you mentioned? We're not able to uh, define the problem because it's defined but wrong people, not scientists, but more mm -hmm. kind of a politician, uh, yes. celebrities, uh, quasi-influencer. Uh, yes. What's your feeling about maybe uh, why, why, while you're not expert in climate change, but what's your feeling? Because I believe that you watch a TV or YouTube with some videos, you, you, you could say, gosh, I know more about this stuff, even this so-called experts. I mean, it's just obvious. It's not scientific. What are you talking about? So what's your feeling? I feel like the specific issue that you mentioned around climate change really personifies exactly what is wrong with how we make decisions today, right? This this really extends to a lot of areas. The same issues plague AI and machine learning. The same issues plague a lot of different fields. But climate change is sort of like the, the, the poster child of exactly what is wrong with the way we make decisions in the world today. Um, I was actually um, having a, a talk. Um, I, I, I host a series of talks called Tech Time with Tanmay. Um, and these talks... Uh, 
uh, are are with special guests. Like, I mean, for example, the first episode was with, with the CTO of of, of Edge Computing um, and the CTO of Data at Data and AI at IBM. Um, their names are Rob High and Sam Lightstone. And I was actually talking about the fact that you know people that don't really understand AI technology, people like again, as you mentioned, politicians or businessmen uh, would talk about artificial intelligence and and what it's going to do in the future, even though they don't understand it. And Sam Sam Lightstone was saying something along the lines of, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but something along the lines of, the exact issue is that people give a lot of weight to what celebrities or or world leaders would say, even though they have no ex- expertise in that area. And that's exactly that, that that's a huge problem. And I totally agree with Sam there, in the sense that it is a big problem if we enable people like you know celebrities or again politicians, whatever, to make decisions or to or to enable or to enable them to talk about, for example, climate change. Whereas what we really need are the scientists actually doing the research to talk about their findings and how we can solve these problems. I mean, there's so much fake news. There's so much misinformation out there around, for example, climate change and how it's supposedly not an issue, even though it really is. And so if you take a look, if you take a look at it again, it boils back down to what I was saying a little while ago, how people that are making decisions essentially are making those decisions for economic gain. In the short term, it's better to not really invest in solving climate change because then you're not, I mean, as some people would say it, wasting money. So really, I believe that no matter what the field is, whether it's climate change, whether it's AI, whether it's anything, the key takeaway is enable the experts to make decisions, enable the experts to, to sort of propagate information, not the celebrities, not the influencers on social media. Um, enable people enable enable people that actually do research at the cutting edge to talk about it not necessarily the people who just happen to be rich or famous or whatever so that's 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 what my opinion would be and i completely agree with you and another thing uh, i would like to add that uh due uh, to fake news and um related things we have a kind of a uh, broken paradigm. As you mentioned, one of the uh, key things is uh, in order to solve problems is to define a problem uh, properly and, uh, and after that use the appropriate method. But when we have a fake news, when we have a tons of uh, uh, clutter, we have another problem. First, we need to define a, a real problem. We need to define all the spectrum of fake news for instance, we just had a talk with Wikipedia, and they have created article about uh, all fake news about COVID-19. So the list of all fake news. So we yeah. uh, discussed that nowadays we it's not enough to create a, uh, just a good information or a curate uh, good information about particular uh, things. We need to create a list and define bad information not correct problem. So uh, so we need to create the whole ecosystem around the problem and we need much more efforts. And it's not surprising <laughs> when in result developers fails because we have no appropriate criteria and we have so many additional actions we need to use. Uh, so that's why Wikipedia still have a uh, AI-driven dr- curation. They have a human curation. We need more methods. We need more people. We need uh, more efforts. And, and as a result, we just have a not efficient economy. Uh, uh, and the question why it's happened, I mean, it's uh, out of logic. <laughs> 
completely out of logic. What's your feeling? So, I mean, really what I would say is the reason that fake news propagates at, at the rate that it does, right? And the reason that, um, that opinions that don't really make any sense continue to propagate is because of a few things. First of all, there's the, there's the fact that social media kind of becomes like an echo chamber of certain opinions that people really think or that, that they really believe in. If, if you are convinced that the earth is flat or, or, or that vaccines, you know, don't work or something of that sort, then no matter how much evidence I try and present to you, this is a basic psychological fact. No matter how much evidence I try and present to you, your brain is going to look for evidence. It's going to look for certain parts of that evidence that try and, and, and point towards your hypothesis, even if all of it is actually pointing in the other direction. So psychologically, we really try and find certain pieces of evidence or facts and try and misconstrue them such that they fit our mental model of how we think. And when you take social media and the fact that anybody can get a message out there and, and get thousands of likes and, and get so what seems like attention for what they say, that becomes a much larger problem in the sense that anybody could say anything and if a few other people agree with that person's opinion, then it becomes a lot of people that start to agree with their opinion. So that's definitely a problem. There have been ways that companies have tried to combat this. So, for example, Facebook has used some form of machine learning in order to automatically analyze videos and try and do some kind of fact checking. But again, there's a limit to how much they can actually accomplish with that. There's some blatant fake news that they can easily detect and, and filter or flag. But then there are more complex pieces of news that might be fact, might be fiction, might be in between. We don't know. Right? It's very, very difficult to classify even as a human what's true or false. Forget for a machine learning algorithm. Even just having that sort of common sense reasoning and logic is itself a difficult task for the computer. And then being able to apply that to detecting fake news is orders of magnitude more difficult. So the need for an application like this is larger than it's ever been before because of the fact that we can we can create these echo chambers of opinions. I mean, there are certain subreddits you'll go to and it'll just be the same, essentially, opinion <laughs> echoed by every single person on the entire subreddit um, or on the entire Facebook page or on the entire whatever. Um, and and no amount of evidence is, is enough to really convince them otherwise. So I would say that it the the issue is with how we how we communicate today but there's really not much we can do because overall in my opinion the positive side to social media or to the way we communicate today and how it's how it's been structured outweighs the negatives in the sense that it enables this sort of mass communication that was never possible before in human history. I mean, if you think about it, the internet has enabled every single major innovation that's happened after it. Right? The internet has enabled anybody from any part of the world to communicate with anybody else and learn from them or to teach them or to do anything. Um, so the need for an application like this is, is definitely there. Machine learning technology isn't necessarily evolved far enough yet, I would say, to really be um, proficient at a task like this. Machine learning technology can help flag, can help identify or help you audit some kind of data as long as you, you know what kind of data you're looking at, you know what kind of fake news you're going to see. When you start to get more complex with different opinions that people are coming up with, I don't think machine learning technology scales to that yet. It will in the future, 
It just can't yet. So as you mentioned, Wikipedia, they're using AI-powered curation, but they also have human curation in the loop as well because AI is simply not robust enough to do that all automatically yet. Um, so it's important, but right now I would say we trust human curation more than we trust AI curation um, and start working towards better machine learning technology for this area. Uh, and we are moving to another problem and another important topic. Uh, back to 2012, I'm working on a company focused on uh, data curation. And one of the ways to tackle problem you just mentioned uh, was using uh, influencers and source of information in order to understand how is it close to the truth. Because in most cases, as you mentioned, some fake have a 50% of truth and 50% of fake. So using semantic analysis, it's not sufficient to actually structure and analyze it. So we can may maybe rely on people who share it or uh, people who confirm it. But now we have another problem because nowadays our influencers, our beauty bloggers, uh, maybe Kim Kardashian, or people who have no expertise or uh, driven by brands or people who pay money or uh, make a, a native advertising or promoted content. So we have tons of additional flows of uh, traffic, of uh, flows, of uh, reactions, of uh, people interaction. So it doesn't work anymore. So what's your opinion about uh, influencers uh, in social media and how we could tackle, uh, how we could use algorithms to work with them, uh, analyze them and use them correctly? So the thing is, in general, I would say the use of algorithms here is a bit controversial at all because of the fact that whether or not an opinion is 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 objectively true or false is something that people argue about, right? There's some things that we can blatantly say are true. Climate change is something that happens, and it is a very serious problem. Vaccines are safe and are important to use. The earth is not flat. There's some things that we can objectively say are true. But then there are other things that are kind of in like a gray area where people are still debating about them or or like half and half of the population of different views, um, where it's not necessarily something that we can use an algorithm to say, this is true, this is false. So even working with influencers in that case, the output of the algorithm doesn't really make much sense. But let's just say we were even then, I don't necessarily think influencers are, again, the right people to work with. You need to work with experts. The reason I say that is because even influencers, no matter how great they may seem, may not actually be that great. I mean, there are lots of examples. Elon Musk's tweet uh, yesterday around, you know, um, open, you know, uh, opening up lockdown in some certain states and, and doing things is a perfect example of that. And And I believe that, again, these algorithms need to take expert input, not influencer input, people that actually understand the field inside now, people that have done the research, research that has been peer reviewed. That's what we need to be feeding into these algorithms, not necessarily which influencers agree with or disagree with this opinion, because again, they're not experts. They're not, they're not the people doing that research. Yes, and here we're uh, moving to another huge uh, Feel the work uh, me and many people around the world try to fix because how to define expert because uh, currently we have a very controversial situation in people with PhD with uh, even researchers in, in some kind of academic work not uh, 
always are experts. <laughs> and sometimes we just use it for a career road. And I face this situation. I face a person who's been involved in corruption and used PhD in order to uh, participate in, in public financing and get some uh, opportunities for own businesses. So here we have another huge task. We need some kind of a economy platforms of accomplishments with the actual traction for every individual so we could come up with the criteria how to define ac actual expertise through research, uh, founded companies, uh, participation in companies which we uh, could define as a valuable like IBM, Google, Amazon, and we could uh, measure impact this person done in this organization, not because he uh, he uh, was an employee, but he actually participated in a particular project and contribute 70% of his project. And we have all of his data and, we all, and we're able to evaluate all of his data and use a different criteria. So what do you think about how we could define expert on the web uh, nowadays? So this is a very open-ended um, discussion, I, I would say, and it, it again really depends because there's some people that claim to be experts in the medical field, and then they'll tell you that you know, again, say vaccines are 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 bad for you, right? So there's some people that claim to be experts, and some people actually think that they are experts, which is which is an issue. So what I would say is. It, it, it boils down to not necessarily us classifying people as experts or not necessarily experts having that designation of being an expert, but really it, it's it's up to the people that are, so that, actually I would say it boils down to two things. First of all, it boils down to the average person and understanding that not everything you see on the internet is first of all as true or as popular as you might think it is. Just because something has 6,000 likes on Twitter doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing or doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing, right? I mean, out of the 300 million people in the U.S. or the 30 million people in Canada, if there's 6,000 likes on a Twitter post, it seems like a lot for social media, but it's actually not. That's a very small fraction of the population that happens to agree with whatever's in that tweet or Facebook post or whatever. So that's, that's the first thing, being able to understand that whatever you look at on social media looks like big numbers, looks like a lot of people, but it's actually just a fraction of the world population that happens to have seen or agreed with that post. Now, apart from that, I would say that it's up to people that distribute information to also have the responsibility to distribute truthful information in the sense that a lot of people aren't going to say, hmm, are vaccines good or bad? I'm going to read real research papers on whether or not it's good or bad, right? No one's going to sit down there and actually search up for those research papers, read them, understand them. People people aren't going to do that. No matter how much we may want them to do that, they're not going to do that. It's not practical. So it's up to the news organizations. It's up to social media organizations to help bring the right information to people while at the same time enabling them to have you know fundamental freedoms that have still been afforded to them like like for example being able to express a different opinion so it's a very complex um, topic classifying someone as an expert I would say that it's not necessarily individual people it's individual in opinions that we should be taking into account and understanding whether those opinions are academically accepted to be true or false from the majority of people. And then based off of that, determining what information is is, is important um, to be distributing. There's some people that we could just, you know, 
label as experts outright. So, for example, you know, um, people that are responsible for 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 handling you know medical care in governments, right? So, for example, um, the, the the federal uh, Canadian government um, here here in Canada, um, I'm forgetting her name unfortunately, but the uh, chief medical officer here at, at, in Canada or at companies like IBM, um, these people, we can say that they are experts. Whatever they're saying. We should be listening to what they're saying because we can see the kinds of experience that they have, the kinds of research that they've done, and know that whatever they've done has has been, you know, for science and with science, and not necessarily for their own personal opinion or gain. So that's the kind of that's the kind of thing. Oh yes, her name, Dr. Teresa Tam. Um, so so we can we can say that these people are experts that we should be listening to what they say, and then from there it's it's up to the people that distribute information to have a kind of responsibility, which I know not a, not a lot of people have. And it's very difficult to enforce that, and I don't necessarily have a solution to that at the moment. Um, but it's up to that that medium through which people actually gain information to to have the responsibility to distribute the right information. You mentioned uh, one uh, important thing that um, sometimes we're not able to fix uh, anything with a, a um, algorithm with technology, and I believe that uh, today we have a more responsibility for people, and we also uh, talk about Wikipedia and people who work on uh, social networks. Currently, we have a term what we call information citizen or digital citizen. So there is some kind of a personal responsibility uh, for how you navigate on the web, how you able to define that particular tweet uh, is uh, good for reading or for believing or not. Um, and there are many projects in this uh, direction. And um, I would love to mention that the huge impact here, open source, um, was made by open source. I mean, for instance, Wikipedia is still banned in China <laughs> because it helped people to understand who are uh, true uh, political leaders and who are maybe criminals, who have be, been involved in some bad things, who are not. What is the actual... Um, so, so we have a true and not true, and it's uh, usually openly listed. So uh, you're known as a person who involved in open source movement, who are passionate about open source. I personally would love to make many things open source, learning, healthcare, uh, open research, open science. What is your current involvement on open source? What things you would love to make open for people to maybe skyrocket its development and involvement on different peers around the world? So, I mean, I've always been passionate about open source technology. I mean, as you can imagine, um, I've, I've always been passionate about taking what it is that I learn and enabling others to learn about it and just generally having free software that people can people can look at, people can understand, people can modify for their own use, people can contribute to. I believe that's important because technology is growing at such a rapid, a rapid pace that individual companies or individuals themselves simply cannot scale to how fast that technology is growing. I mean, think about Linux. Linux being open source has been its greatest advantage, but also at times its greatest disadvantage. 
so for example, why do why does the average consumer not use Linux? Because there are so many hundreds of different forks of different Linux distributions meant for the average consumer that there's so much work being distributed across hundreds of different forks that nobody's really contributing towards this one central repository. It's not like all these developers are contributing towards Ubuntu or Arch Linux or whatever. There's so much there's so much duplication of work happening across so many forks that it's not a great user experience for the end user like 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 me or you or, or the average person. Um, but then when it comes to servers, Linux is amazing because you've got all these amazing companies, IBM, Red Hat, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, smaller companies, hiring full-time developers for the sole purpose of contributing to the Linux code base. And because you've got so many different companies contributing to that one piece of software, you have this amazing, robust, enterprise-grade open source uh, kernel. Um, and so uh, open source technology is important, and it's something that I've always been passionate about. Um, almost all of my major projects are open source. Um, and, and, and even if they're not entirely open source, components of them that enable developers to, to sort of extend them and bring them into their own application, certain capabilities are open source, um, or at least the logic, or at least at some level. Um, we've actually been seeing a tremendous amount of innovation for, for tackling COVID-19, thanks to the fact that companies like IBM have enabled folks to use any of their patents as long as it's being used towards the goal of solving this sort of pandemic or, or somehow assisting um, the, the, the response to COVID-19. So open source, in my opinion, is important because of the fact that technology is growing at a pace where individuals simply cannot, cannot, cannot sort of cannot move their technology or their actual applications as fast as the industry itself is moving ahead. I mean, think about the Swift programming language. Barely anybody would be using it today if it was not open source. The only reason people are really using Swift today is because it can work on Mac, Linux, or Windows. It can run on any architecture, x86, ARM, or PowerPC, including IBM Power. This is something that barely anything runs on. Swift can run on IBM Power. Um, and at the same time, it's extremely powerful because now other companies like Google are contributing to Apple's programming language, and they're putting TensorFlow capabilities into Swift. So open source is just incredible in the sense that the community can really come together to build a single, unified, better product than ever possible with just individual disparate apps applications. Uh, and at the same time, there are different misconceptions like, oh, you can't earn money off of open source software and things like this that are simply aren't true, right? There's a way to commercialize software that is still open source. You don't necessarily need it to be free. Um, so it's something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I've always supported and will continue to support and continue to build on. Um, and, and it's important to ensure that individual apps and companies and enterprises can continue to move forward as fast as the academic world or as fast as, as fast as the industry as a whole. Um, you mentioned an important thing that um, initially uh, Linux had a problem with the uh, version and how it, it distributed, with why it wasn't very convenient for an uh, um, end user. But do you think it's not even an open source problem? It's just a problem of uh, organizing and uh, with, uh, with how open source became more mature and how it became well organized and how uh, this whole movement became mature, we have no such problem anymore. I mean, at some point, uh, organizations, platforms, developers think that everything should uh, 
um, happen completely automated way. Like we have a community, we create new version, they organize everything without our involvement and everything will be okay. And I think it just failed because anyway, we need some kind of curators, people who organize the process, create a framework, create agenda, create a, some kind of a, you know, mentors, curators who help us to make it more um, organized. Do you feel that open source movement and projects you're working on became more disciplined, uh, better organized, and approach to working through open source became uh, very good and mature nowadays? So, yeah, I mean, over time, people have been getting better and better at open source development. And, I mean, uh, my comment on Linux wasn't necessarily for open source software, but maybe specifically the way Linux was built. Um, because if, if Linux, let's just say, was closed source, and let's just say Linux was made for commercial use, then more than likely they would actually have a vested commercial interest in ensuring Linux stays alive by working with manufacturers that develop different chips and drivers and things like that, and actually working with them to make sure they work on Linux for robustly and that consumers don't need to worry about it. I mean, you wouldn't walk up to the average person at a coffee shop and, and see them running Ubuntu on their laptops because, again, the integration isn't there yet. It's much better. It's, it's leaps and bounds ahead of what it was just a couple of years ago, but it's still not there yet. Mac just works on computers. Windows usually just works on computers, um, and, and, and that's what people like about it. That's why people use it. But then, again, in the, in the enterprise area, that doesn't really matter because you know you've already got all these different companies contributing towards that one single Linux code base so it works there so no complaints against Linux I mean it's it's, it's a great code base and it works for what it was meant for and that's 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 what matters um, but yeah people have been getting more and more mature about their open source strategy since you know since this has started since the sort of trend started um, and and you've seen different tools pop up uh, and different methodologies pop up from pl planning and maintaining open source code um, so for example open source at IBM, there's this whole like sub-organization within IBM that deals with uh, how do we open source products? How do we determine what's important to open source? Um, how do we ensure that those open source code bases stay maintained and how do we version them? I mean, that even just that is within itself a pretty huge problem. For example, if you take a look at the IBM Swift organization, they've got this project called Ketura, which is like Swift for the server side, you know, HTTP servers and things like that. Um, and, and this whole team was dedicated essentially just to uh, planning out the future of Keturah with the community um, and, and determining where it needs to go in the future and how those changes are going to be implemented. Um, and, and we've seen more tools, like for example, uh, we've seen continuous integration tools from Jenkins. Um, we've seen Jenkins pipelines pop up. We've seen things like, um, for example, JFrog's Artifactory. We've seen all, th all sorts of things um, sort of work around this open source uh, community to enable open source to work better and more smoothly than possible before. Um, so, so different things are happening. Different methodologies are, are popping up to to enable better open source software to exist. Uh, and really, without that framework in place, it's very difficult to make sure that something as large as, say, the Linux code base or the Git code base or the Swift code base or the Go code base can actually stay in a clean and consistent fashion. So people are learning a lot as they're going through. And I think today open source is a pretty evolved and a pretty mature technology. Let's talk about YouTube and edutainment. You have a, a channel on YouTube. It's a very successful. You're very consistent creating content. It's a 
great, is beautiful. Uh, recently, uh, NASA has started a scientific show on Twitch. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to explore in, uh, all the video platforms we have, both uh, online streaming, YouTube, Twitch, and so on. Um, and while it was a very quality scientific show, it has gathered just few views, so it wasn't popular at all. Um, based on your experience, do you think what we still fail our battle of knowledge with the beauty bloggers, gamers, and people still prefer more uh, entertainment, more viral content, not something that pushes them to learn, to think, and make some kind of uh, efforts to understand something? So, so the thing is, you have to try and understand why that is the case. The reason that's the case is because if you have like genuinely um, like ed like education packed content, right, that you try and make fun, uh, a lot of people wouldn't watch that because they're not interested in that. That's not what they want to learn. They didn't come on YouTube with the intention of learning gradient descent or learning how, you know, machine learning works or whatever or or how you mean as you mentioned NASA scientific show. They didn't come with the intention of learning. They came with the intention of passing their time or having fun. Uh, more than likely, that's the vast majority of the viewers on YouTube are there essentially for entertainment. Um, that was the initial idea behind YouTube, and that's why it was developed. And we also just so happened to have thought of it as a good edu entertainment platform, but it was, uh, oh, sorry, good education platform, but it was initially meant for entertainment. Um, and so what I would say is really it, we have to work on it in two ways. First of all, we've got to make it so that people find out what so what I would say the issue is here is that the education system in general today doesn't really work towards helping people find out what it is that they're passionate about. The education system works towards essentially having you memorize certain concepts, not necessarily understanding the problem-solving framework that went behind coming up with those concepts, which is the wrong way to do it in my opinion. If the education system worked a bit differently and we were actually helping people find what it is that they're passionate about, there would just be generally lots more people that would be interested in learning different kinds of concepts that are actually related to, you know, education and actual sort of like, um, like, like, like uh, learning based content. So I feel like it's not even totally the fault of people that are on the platform because they just weren't given the right resources from which to start and to realize that, hey, I'm interested in this and I want to learn about this. Um, and, and that's why you see different YouTubers like, for example, Vsauce as extremely popular because they are extremely entertaining and you don't need to have any kind of, um, you know, background to watch any of his videos because everything is explained essentially from scratch, but you still end up, you know, after having fun, you end up having taken away a few concepts from it. You might not remember them a few weeks from now. Like you might not remember the name of the effect for why the sky looks blue, or you may not remember whether linguistically cereal is soup, or you may not necessarily remember um, what's the speed of darkness or whatever else his videos tell you about. But you learn those concepts, and that's why his videos get so many views is because they are educational, but also extremely entertaining. Or like, for example, Mark Rober um, and, and his like physics-based videos, which again, extremely entertaining, but you also end up learning something about physics along the way. So I would say that, first of all, it's not even just a problem of the people on the platform um, that are creating or consuming content. It's a problem of how we 
generally in society teach people and, and educate them and, and, and get them into this world of education and how, how to learn. Um, and if we were to enable them to learn in a better way, then I believe that would make it so that generally educational content is consumed more because people just want to learn more, not because they're being told to learn more, but because they want to learn more. Um, one more thing that I will sort of add on to that, though, is that today there are lots of different fields that humans work in that don't necessarily require the skills that make us special as humans. So if you take a look at like, and this is an example that I take a lot, but it's not the only one. And I'll talk about a few more in a moment. Um, like, for example, driving, right? Driving is a certain ability that we humans have kind of, we've, we've worked backwards to invent driving. We as humans never evolved to do something like driving. We're one of the only animals with blind spots in our eyes. We, were, we biologically were never meant to drive trucks or cars or whatever. It doesn't use any creativity or problem solving or whatever. It's just simple visual recognition. What's in front of me? What do I do next? That's it. It's really a waste of human of, – uh, uh, it's, it's a waste of manpower to have people driving. Same thing with being a cashier at a grocery store. It's a waste of human it's, – it's a waste of manpower because you're not doing anything that requires any human sort of skills like problem solving, which is, which is what really sets us apart. But then there are also some fields like working in technology or healthcare or art or whatever else that do require these unique human abilities. So as we start to use machine learning to automate more and more of these jobs or these skills that don't require our innate abilities, and when we actually start to have start to sort of constrict the number of jobs or the number of fields within you can that that you can actually work within to the fields that require these unique human skills, and, and then we sort of invent new industries that also require these human skills. Once we do that, then again we're going to see this huge surge of people that want to learn just because well, there is no job that they can do without having some kind of expertise in some some kind of area. So I would say that overall the education system really needs to evolve and slowly but surely we're going to start seeing more educational content being consumed because of the plain fact that it needs to be consumed and people will start to want to consume it a lot more too in the future. Since you mentioned school and education system, um, I would love to ask you, uh, do you attend school or you prefer homeschooling currently in the, and in the past? So I, I've been homeschooled since around grade six. Uh, and the reason for that is because I, I don't like to follow a set or a strict curriculum to learn. Uh, I believe that's that's that to me at least that's not a great way to learn. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to have to say you know I don't want to have to have this like curriculum that says this year you're going to learn all of this and that's it that's that's what my learning is constricted to. I don't like that. I like being able to have it open ended and and sort of expand organically. Um, so like for example. Um, uh, a little while ago when I stumbled upon IBM Watson for the first time, uh, when I was around 11 years old, um, one of the first services that I found was called the Personality Insights Service. And Personality Insights can take a bit of text that you write and try and predict personality traits based off of that text. And that's really fascinating because it doesn't look at the content of your text. It looks at the structure of your grammar, and based off of that, it tries to predict personality traits. 
And to me, I was like, wait, how can you do that? So, of course, that led me into machine learning technology and how personality insights works. But then that also led me to basically the science behind the service and how can you use language to predict personality traits? That led me to the world of psychology, which led me to the world of language, which led me to the world of, you know, how did humans evolve to have language? Um, what's the impact that language has on the human brain and vice versa? Uh, and, and there's so many different things that, that one service led to, not just machine learning or how to call a REST API, right? So there's, there's so much that it leads to. And that's why I like homeschooling, because I can grow what I learn organically instead of having to follow a set standard curriculum, and my curiosity can guide me. Uh, over our talk, uh, several times we've mentioned uh, that nowadays we have a problem of a paradigm of uh, how we work with the framework of problem. And you have a talk uh, that's called uh, How to uh, Connect Disconnected with AI. Yes. So um, still, uh, since I always love people who are not just uh, working on technology, but have some kind of particular mission, vision, and, and long-term long plan, for instance, uh, I'm building open and inclusive uh, ecosystem where everyone in the world have a connection regarding age, uh, gender, ability, uh, neurodiversity, so it's completely adapted, it's uh, completely open. So what is your vision and what you mean behind this uh, title? So uh, I believe that talk that you're talking about would be my TEDx Cincinnati talk. Um, and that talk was around a project called The Cognitive Story. Uh, and this project is essentially how can we use machine learning technology to enable people that cannot communicate to communicate in some fashion in an, on an, in an automated way. So, for example, uh, instead of, say, their mom or someone else who's close to them having to interpret what they're saying, can we use machine learning to automatically understand electroencephalograms, their brain's electrical activity, or whatever else? Um, and the thing about this project is that, of course, this is a very long-term project, as you mentioned. This isn't something that we can say, all right, two years from now, we're done, and it's, 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 it's a finished product. This is something that's going to continue to evolve and get more and more complex over time. Um, and, and really, the way that I've been working towards this project has started off from a very software-focused perspective because without software, we can't really do much. So I focused a lot on software and I built it out and I've got these you know, great machine learning algorithms for electroencephalogram classification and I've done quite a bit of research into this. Um, but unfortunately, we've reached a bottleneck and the bottleneck is hardware. Um, this is still something that we're working towards actively. We are working with a bunch of different electroencephalogram headset companies on, um, on, on the actual, um, on, on getting our hands on, on hardware to use, to use with my software. Um, but it's something that is still under active development. Um, what I can say right now is that the initial results look good on electromyogram data. Um, I have reached a milestone called mental state recognition. So I have been able to use, for example, the Muse EEG headset with five channels of data uh, along with my software in order to classify mental states. Like, are you relaxing or are you concentrating? And this doesn't work like a lot of people think it works, right? It's not just 
convert time domain to frequency domain, and when you see a, a spike in alpha, then you're relaxing. Now, it actually uses machine learning algorithms that I've made to analyze raw electroencephalogram to classify different mental states. Um, so that, that's one thing. Um, and so I've reached these milestones. I know that my algorithms can understand EEG. Now it's a matter of getting high enough resolution of EEG data to actually enable more complex interpretations. So that's something we're still working towards actively, but yes, this is a long-term project that I'm really passionate about, and I really do hope that um, that we can that we can get more uh, out in the open very soon. Uh, another really good part about this project is that a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is open source. Um, a lot of the different hardware that we've developed so far, uh, some of the different software is open source on GitHub. You can take a look at it, and more of it will be coming out soon. So uh, it's 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 really interesting stuff that we're working on. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Muse headset. Uh, as I remember, uh, it's a startup from Canada. Um, and uh, since you mentioned with a mental health company, what is your favorite um, social challenges you're passionate about, like mental health, uh, I don't know, assistive technology, access, education, three or four things you're uh, passionate about and would love to solve in the future? So I've always been passionate about two things, two fields, and applying technology in these two fields, healthcare and education. And the reason I say that is because if you take a look at healthcare, pretty obvious. I mean, you can save people's lives, you can augment people's lives in ways that we so far thought were impossible. And we can do this with the power of machine, machine learning technology. So that's one thing that I'm really passionate about. Another field that I'm very passionate about is the field of education. And the reason I say that is because if you think about it, it's kind of weird the way we teach people today. Education is supposed to prepare the next generation for a future that doesn't exist, for industries that we can't even envision today. And instead of giving them the very cutting edge of education, the very cutting edge of technology, we are giving them outdated material, we are giving them outdated, you know, thoughts and ideas and opinions and things like this that really don't work. If we want kids to be ready for the future, we need them to be at the very cutting edge every single year so that when they are actually out there getting a job, they actually know what they need to do. They actually have the skills. They actually are able to work in the industries of the future, especially now that we're going through this sort of period where we're transitioning from certain technologies to other technologies. Um, so, so what I would say is, Using the power of next generation technology in the field of education is really important to me because it enables the next generation of humans to be ready for the future that no one can really envision. But at the same time, being able to apply machine learning in a field like healthcare where there's so much data that's just going to waste, so much data that we're simply not even analyzing, we're not computing on, being able to leverage that data to really make an impact on people's lives is, is what I'm passionate about. So for example, as you mentioned, there's this project that, I'm, that I talked about a moment ago, the cognitive story. Um, there's also my project in the field of mental health that we talked about. These are things that I am continuing to work on and, and, and hopefully very soon these are able to save people's lives. It's something that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, and similarly within the field of education, uh, a bunch of different projects that I can't talk about just yet, but I will be very soon. By the way, uh, since you mentioned that you're completely on homeschooling, do you have a plans to become students in places like MIT, Harvard, Stanford, or Canadian universities? So, um, 
uh, I haven't really put much thought into it yet. Um, in in my opinion, uh, it's it's something that would be interesting in terms of getting experience. I would love to do research at different institutions like this. Um, that's something that I would definitely be interested in. Uh, I mean, my main sort of area of passion is applying natural language processing with with AI. That's like my number one um, passion, uh, understanding natural language data. That I I believe that's very underappreciated and the most complex form of data to understand. Um, and Stanford, for example, does a lot of research with natural language. They've built all sorts of cutting-edge natural language processing toolkits and stuff. Um, so that's something that I'm interested in. MIT also does a lot of work with that, University of Toronto. So I would love to do research at these different institutions. Um, but again, I haven't really put much thought into it just yet. Um, I will soon, though. Okay. And finally, what would you say to people maybe of your age or maybe a bit older or maybe a bit younger who really feel stuck? Maybe you do. they do some stuff. Maybe we're involved in some work, some project, but they feel that we're involved in someone else's game, in someone else's paradigm, and we're completely bored, exhausted, and we'd love to start to do something where we have a connection, they have a problem and they have an energy to solve it and be involved and be happy. So what is your recipe and advice for that. So what I would say is, is it really boils down to follow your heart, follow your passion and, and persevere. So what does that mean? So first of all, I believe that there's always something that you that people are passionate about. It's again, going back to what I mentioned in the very beginning, it comes back to helping you find what it is that you're passionate about. Um, so for me, it's technology. For you, it could be anything else. So whatever it is that you happen to enjoy or that you enjoy is just a hobby persevere in that specific area and understand that whatever roadblocks you face aren't 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 roadblocks you're going to be hitting for the rest of your life once you get over them you're never going to encounter another one like that again because you're gaining experience or learning from your mistakes so following your heart and your passion persevering is really the number one thing that i would say and on top of that i mean what you just said around you know for example being forced to follow someone else's ideas uh, I would say that open source comes back here, uh, right? So open source is very relevant for, for something that people want to do. If they genuinely just want to make an impact, um, then then open source technology comes back in the sense that lots of companies today, including IBM, um, have these amazing new policies. Like, for example, previously, IBM used to have a policy, and a lot of companies have this, where their employees, whatever they do, even on their own time, is IBM's intellectual property or Google's intellectual property. If you work for Google or Apple or whatever, uh, a lot of companies are starting to put in, you know, these these um these 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 policies where if you're building open source software then it's open source IP it's not IBM's anymore or it's not it's not whatever companies you work for um, and because of that people have now a lot more freedom to say you know what sure I do this in my regular job but I'm passionate about making an impact in healthcare in this area so even if it's a little bit I'm going to start working on this as a side project open source and if it's something that you think you could get economic gain out of then you follow the same sort of pattern or the same framework people have been following for decades um, in terms of building a product proving that it works building that MVP and then from there being able to make a business out of it so so, so it really uh, I, I would say that if it's something that you're passionate about and you just want to make an impact Open source is the way to go. Lots of companies are giving you freedom around this. And if it's something you think you could make money off of, and if you're interested in that sort of business angle and you happen to be in that sort of area, then go for it. I mean, it's 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 something that I think would would definitely be valuable. So um, things are changing. Uh, companies are evolving. Policies are evolving. And people are getting a lot more freedom to work on what it is that they want to work on.